0: Hello, my fellow apes and other terrestrials uh welcome to episode eleven of our weekly podcast. uh we're talking with apes uh this week, I have a special guest lotta yeah. please introduce yourself
1: um yes, so uh I'm lotta I'm uh ex film student, which means that I graduated recently um and I'm here to talk a bit about film and politics and leftism, I guess. Um yeah. And I'm also a friend of Tom's and Kenan's and Morgan's, so <laughs> that's why I'm here, I guess.
0: Thank you for coming. Um you recently wrote your master thesis. Uh
1: yes, uh I did. On um uh, which is kind of like a niche on uh subject. So yeah. <laughs> uh
0: those are two uh, they're filmmakers, they're a couple. Uh and what is the, what what should we imagine? Uh, when thinking of those of those two,
1: of those two, um, I don't know. It's kind of like a very um, severe, strict aesthetic that they adhere to. I guess to like outsiders, but I mean also to insiders. Um, it, it like they are very challenging films. Um, they kind of make uh, Marxist cinema with like the purpose of reaching the audience in a very authentic way, which like um because it like attempts to be so pure in what they're doing it's kind of like hard to reach a big audience with it and like it also leads to a lot of frustration with the viewers of course um but yeah so that's that i guess (laughs)
0: um and with authentic and pure how should i imagine that because like you said they're not the most popular uh, of movies uh
1: um, yeah, I, I mean, they're very inspired by a kind of, like, Brechtian aesthetics, but they also, like, move beyond that. Um, and I guess, like, uh, some of their films seem, like, unnecessarily alienating. Like, I think if you would describe a Straubieh movie, like a typical Stravia movie, there's, of course, like... I guess this is kind of like, how do you say, like, heilig <laughs> Um Like to... Unholy. Uh, yeah, to attempt to reduce it to, like, kind of a formula, but it's also kind of easy to do so. So, I mean, let's just say what they typically do is, like, take some ancient text that seems to have very little to do with communism or modernity, even though that is, mm-hmm. like, kind of, like, what they're addressing. They want to make anti-capitalist films. So they will take this really old text... Um, and then uh, make an adaptation of it, but that is not naturalistic um, as a, like a normal adaptation would be, or like, I don't know, like a, a, at least an adaptation that we are more used to seeing. Um, and like, basically, they will use not famous actors, but just like normal working people that then will recite these words in a very seemingly monotonous and kind of like boring droning way, <laughs> um, and um, also the shots are very static and the movements are very rigid, and it seems all very kind of like robotic in a sense. I guess uh, from a first for a first time viewer, um, so in that way it is understandable that a lot of people when the first time they encounter a Soviet movie they just have no idea of how to look at it or why it would even be remotely Marxist in a way, so yeah.
0: (laughs) And with uh, Asian text, you mean uh, like Antigone or Antigone?
1: Yeah, Antigone, or like they uh, reference a lot of Greek mythology, but Mm -hmm. usually through the frame of like other writers, and they also like um, are very inspired by lots of romantic writing, um, which actually does, but like also like they reference like They have different all all different kinds of sources. They reference um, people like Kafka. They also reference Brecht. So, like more obviously, like I don't know, modern or at least like societal, like critical of society. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, even like in the older Romantic texts, like when they kind of like repurpose it and kind of reveal the kind of. Um, critical or the kind of like romantic, anti-capitalistic and anti-modern um, elements in those texts. So even those, in a way, kind of relate back to that, I guess. <laughs>
0: um, welcome back to the to the Marxist stuff because yeah. we've, we've <laughs> talked about that a little bit before the podcast. That's that's one of the big questions here. Mm-hmm. Um, but you also mentioned uh, Brecht, uh, yes. which I assume refers to Brechtel. Uh, Bertolt Uh, Bertolt Brecht, Brecht. oh god. (laughs) No Uh, no worries. Um, The the German theater maker, not a movie maker, right?
1: No, yeah, theater. Um, Yeah, um, basically his, um, like what we refer to when we're talking about Brechtian influences on film, it's usually like his form of epic theater, which Mm -hmm. is uh, kind of a radical political leftist theater that was kind of a reaction to classical notions of theater. And basically what they're going against is kind of this idea that a play should kind of like cause some form of catharsis in the viewer. And catharsis, like I guess most people know this term, but like when we talk about it in theater studies, like it originated from all the way back from Aristotle's poetics. Mm -hmm. um, And the meaning of the word is kind of like a purification, like like the literal meaning. So when we talk about catharsis, it's like a purification of emotions. So in Aristotle's view, of the theater, we go to the theater to kind of feel the, with the protagonist and feel with the story to mm-hmm. kind of like, I guess, purify our excess emotion in order to be better citizens. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> in yeah. real life. Um, so it's kind of like when you watch Titanic and it's really sad and you cry and then you feel kind of relieved afterwards probably because mm-hmm. you had some tensions and you kind of like had to let the emotions go. So that's like catharsis. And um, Brecht wanted to go against that because like if we are purely watching s- like, or like purely spectating a story or like with our emotion and purely seeing it from that point of view um, there's like it's not really making us think um, about like societal structures or like not really leading us to class Mm -hmm. consciousness so for example like a protagonist in a story will can like lose all of their belongings and like die in poverty and our only reaction will be like oh that's like really sad like oh my god it's such a sad story but we're not really questioning like why that's happening or maybe how that could yeah, be prevented yeah. um, and um, so it's just merely a story I guess and then I have to
0: admit my when watching Harry Potter I was also like oh he has to live under the, under the stairs <laughs> I wasn't <laughs> questioning society yes <laughs> no yeah and, and
1: like that that's the thing like of course that is a big element in art and I'm not like, I don't know, like, I don't know enough of Brecht to think that he wanted to get rid of all of that, like, say, like, no, it's illegitimate, but, like, what he did want to do is, in. oh, sorry, uh, what he did want to do was in order to make uh, political art, we kind of have to move beyond that. And a big mis- misconception about epic theater is that it is the enemy of this kind of catharsis, or this kind of, like, okay, it's the enemy of catharsis, probably, <laughs> but it, like, it, but this enemy of all emotion because Mm -hmm. like what epic theater is most known for is the alienation effect yeah that's
0: that's a term that gets thrown around a lot
1: yeah so like basically it's kind of like when you watch something it constantly tries to remind you that it is a story that is trying to tell you something Mm -hmm. and it's trying to i guess teach you something about the world or like make you think critically um but the big misconception about that is that like brechtian theater is only alienation and I think a good quote by a writer, I guess his name was uh, Gilberto Perez, like that I encountered in my research, was that like there is basically no use of distancing people when nothing is drawing them in. So it would be kind of like, "Oh, hey, this is a story, and don't forget that this is a story, and nothing here is real and like then you can ask yourself okay, so but why should I care then why should I keep watching um so the idea is kind of like that there is emotion in there and there is some Mm -hmm. feeling, but you're constantly kind of like, it's kind of a balancing of it and also giving it some edge. Um, And um, he's, he does that by, you know, providing you a story, but then also sometimes um, putting like real facts out there or putting elements there that don't completely fit in the story. Um, And, Another big misconception is that like Brechtian acting is kind of this ironic wink, wink acting like, oh, <laughs> but don't forget, I'm just a character. Like, it's not that like, th- but that was also my misconception. Like I was taught about Brechtian theater in high school and also in my first mm-hmm. y- bachelor year. And that was for a long t- time when I just thought Brechtian acting was like, was just like, I don't know, either very dry. Looking
0: straight at the audience. Yeah. And like, yeah. Kind of that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> And basically it's not that, like in, in, like there are um, recordings of like Mutter Courage, which is one of his plays, and that's from the 50s, which was still like under his direction. So we can kind of Mm -hmm. see like how the actors were supposed to act in his artistic vision. Mm -hmm. And then you can see that the characters do like play their parts sincerely, but it is with a distance, like they just play the part. Like, I think I wrote it down here <laughs> in my notes, so I can, like, I thought it was a good way to explain it. um Like, um so basically, oh yeah, a, a big word is also that they're not playing the words as if they would say them themselves. They're playing the words as if they would cite them, as if they would quote them. So they're not their words. Mm-hmm. They are citing them because they're referring to something else. Um, it does not aim at making us forget that there's an actor playing this part, which is most usually what happens with stories that do want to draw you in and do aim at that kind of a yeah, catharsis. Yeah, to give you the
0: idea that this is all realistic, this is all... Yeah, exactly. it's these
1: kind of ideas of like, oh, they really lost themselves in the part and yeah. kind of this method acting, like forgetting what reality and illusion <laughs> is. Like It's kind of trying to really keep that balance. Um, and so a Brechtian actor is basically constantly reminding you that you know I am making this specific just for a reason or I am saying these words like this for a reason like and that reason is basically like making you think I guess mm-hmm. so yeah
0: <laughs> um and because the sighting is the is the thing you also mentioned in in there in the movies of uh of Straub and You. yeah um I'm not sure if I Huyer, Huyer, <laughs> yeah, Huyé. yes. Straub so yeah, it's, oh yeah. I,
1: I also forgot, like yeah. So it's like Jean-Marie Straub and uh, Daniel Huyer, which is like uh, Daniel Huyé is French and uh, Straub is also French, but I think he was from Alsace, which was like he was like raised um, to learn German and stuff. So mm-hmm. like the war, um, and yeah, I guess they met each other in the '60s and then just made movies together. Um, and I don't know, we're always very militant, made movies in Italy, in France, in Germany. Um, I think they were even um, banned from France for yeah. a very long while because like, I think Jean-Marie Schraub had to join the army, the French army, ah, and then yeah. he refused I to, so I don't know, I think there's also something In, in the there. articles you send me, Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah
0: I, I read something um, with the war in uh, Algeria, yeah, because uh, he would be drafted. Yeah, and and, and he refused he, to. Yes. Yeah,
1: um. So yeah, always been very militant, very kind of like, yeah. <laughs> so, um. oh yeah. But the citing, yes. Yeah, so that, like, I think if we're talking about the Brechtian elements in Stravia, yeah, it's definitely that, like, kind of citing of the words. We need to be very aware of the materiality of the words, basically. Mm-hmm. So if they're adapting this ancient text, they will not attempt to make the text seem more natural if it would be performed, which is usually what kind of like a Hollywood adaptation would do, for example. Um, And so they don't really want to do that. They want to like kind of leave that friction in there. Um, So what they'll often do is kind of like if there's punctuation or stuff like that, they will, like, really emphasize that and really, like, keep that in there and, like, rehearse and rehearse and rehearse the text with their actors and, like, kind of almost make it more musical rhythmic in a way. Okay. As if you would recite a poem, like, like old, ancient, like, I yeah. don't know how to say, like, a Scandere. Like, it's kind of like that. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. I don't know Italian, but there's, like, one, like, the first movie that I watched of them was Dalla Nube alla Resistenza. And then there are a text of a modern author is adapted, like a modern Italian author, but they are adaptations of Greek mythology. And that was like prose. Or like, I guess, yeah, it was prose. Or no, it wasn't. The second half of it, (laughs) no, the second half of it was prose and the first half of it was poetry. Okay. But so the first half was meant to kind of be read aloud or Mm -hmm. could be. The second hand wasn't, but this kind of like uh like scansion i don't know how to say it in english um so this kind of d- diction reciting it's kind of throughout all the movie and so basically the characters will just speak like this the entire time it's like da 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 so it's kind of like and, and
0: okay that
1: makes it like of course very hard to watch because I don't know as a modern audience are also just not used to that anymore I don't know
0: one of their i mean looking looking at the critics <laughs> especially the one that really doesn't like yeah uh, like like um their movies um this point out that at some point the you know uh non professional performers stand in the woods and read monologues <laughs> for two hours. That's in uh, workers and uh, workers, peasants. I
1: mean, yeah, he's not that's wrong. <laughs> so, like, that's exactly <laughs> it. <laughs> um, that's I some pretty know. heavy stuff. It is pretty heavy stuff. Um, yeah. And that's also c- it's kind of frustrating about it, because um, the course that we had to watch it in and where I was first introduced to these filmmakers was Aesthetics of Contemporary Cinema. And so basically, all the things we saw were like slow, boring, Whoa. difficult. Um, I mean, I say boring, but like I'm not supposed to, like. <laughs> <laughs> you I have, have your
0: degree; you can say whatever you want. No, I have found <laughs> some.
1: I have found some interesting things in that, but yeah, okay. I do understand that like the majority of people would find it boring, mm-hmm. and also I would find it boring at first. But then you know, <laughs> um, but even this like Stroupye is like a few tires like above that even like so there is kind of like the difficult it's movies the and then ultimate. there's Div, like yeah because with the other ones you can still kind of like i don't know get used to the rhythm of it and then kind of like i don't know maybe find some aesthetic pleasure in it or find something mm-hmm. interesting about it and with this one i I guess the difficulty is that because people are speaking the entire time, you kind of have the feeling that you're constantly missing things or you're just like too stupid to understand <laughs> it or like too um, ignorant of the context. Mm-hmm. And that makes you feel like it's constantly going over your head. So you can't really like even kind of lose yourself in it or, or be like, oh, but this isn't a very nice shot or this is in- interesting because you're constantly feeling like you're missing things. And What's ins- interesting was that then I found in an interview that that is basically kind of the whole purpose. Because like basically okay. what, um, like I think what Huye once said in, like it was like a and a after watching. And then I think um, the audience was addressing that it was frustrating that there were no, Uh, subtitles (laughs) (laughs) because that's also something that they're super strict about like there will be sometimes subtitles but then they will be subtitles that Danielle Huia like wrote herself Um, and also again in a very strict way where it's like not like if you would translate from French to German she wouldn't try to make it sound more natural in German like again it's like trying to find that friction so if you would have like an idiom in French I guess she wouldn't try to find the equivalent Mm -hmm. idiom in german it would be like i don't know a very literal translation in as far as you can do that um and then sometimes she would even like purposefully like le- leave the subtitles out so you're like <laughs> watching it with subtitles and then all of a sudden there's no subtitles anymore this and you're like, like, you feel what? like
0: trolling people <laughs> yeah kind <laughs> of
1: kind of but it's kind of like to remind you that there's like a whole movie going out there and you're like you reading the subtitles and trying to grasp desperately like everything that's being said is kind of like defeating the purpose like because she's also like it's kind of a comment and how we cannot really possess this kind of like we have this idea that we can possess this knowledge and like can completely understand it and make it our own but it's like she said like it's the same as with reading when you're reading a book you're also not like taking in every word and like constantly kind of like you're also kind of reading it in a stream And kind of losing all this detail. And that's, uh, I guess, kind of what they are pointing at.
0: Yeah, one review said, uh, generally their work is intended to be viewed in uh, concert with other forms of knowledge. With a mastery of several European languages. With an authoritative uh, understanding of the complex politics of uh, rearmament. Oh my god <laughs> <Re-arm-a-ma-ment>? rearmament okay <laughs> uh, i i don't even the know post-war that word <laughs> federal republic of germany with a familiarity with now obscure text from uh, antiquity etc
1: yeah and, and i mean that's that's like pretty funny because that's like completely against their purpose <laughs> like like and that's also the thing i guess that is the biggest um I don't know, point of tension or point of discussion is that their whole thing is that their movies are meant for the proletariat, for the working class and that like they completely go against this idea that you should have any knowledge beforehand or that like you should even have this knowledge of language. Like, they Mm -hmm. kind of want to respect these boundaries of language. Like, if you don't know Italian and you want to watch this movie, it's like, okay, but like you're not going to understand the Italian and you should just be at peace with that. (laughs) And like, I don't know, look at the other elements of the movie, I guess. Like, uh-huh. um, bec- I, I guess it's because they're kind of like, oh, we accept the boundaries that are uh, put on us by class, but we do not accept the boundaries that are put on us by language, which is kind of weird because then it's kind of like, oh, so you're against the accessibility of your films. Yeah. but
0: Because that sounds it like g- the biggest difference b- where, where Bricht really tried to reach... Or at least had the idea of reaching a, a broad audience. Yeah, um,
1: but they also kind of want to do that. But then again, they also don't want to compromise on um, <laughs> because they kind of feel like that would be condescending. Yes. Um, like there was one text where they're talking about how it's very difficult for them to distribute their films. And for example, there was like Italian, like a, an Italian TV station, and they would only show their films if they were dubbed which is something mm-hmm. that, like, was a big no Yeah, I can like, imagine don't if, you, them.
0: if you like, playing with the subtitles even. <laughs> like, yeah,
1: like, um, because they kind of have this feeling, know? like, it's just so... And, and that's maybe something we can also return back to, but, like, the, the specific detail of the moment when it is being filmed and, like, even the sound or the timbre of their actors' voices is actually so, so important to them. It's basically, like, it's, like, the soul of these people and you can't just, like, dub over it. Like, that would, like, just be mm-hmm. completely... I don't know. Um, oh, sorry. Um, so yeah, it kind of has to do with that. And and so like they were kind of arguing against that. And then also these movies were only being shown at like, I don't know, one in the morning or two in the morning. And then it's like, oh. Very we're, accessible. Yeah, yeah we're, we're, not, we're completely not reaching an, a, a worker or like a proletari- proletariat audience with that then. So like, yeah, they were constantly struggling mm-hmm. with this. So kind of the sad thing about it is that they were very much against academic intellectualism and against, like, the structure of academia. Yeah, like they've become
0: an extreme example of academic...
1: Yeah, but that was not really their... Or, like, that was really not their attention. Like, they're super critical of that. They're super critical of film festivals and of kind of this idea of, like, cultural capital of, like, mm-hmm. oh, I understand this super niche, like, leftist content, and that makes me, what I don't know, like, a better human, like, no, they're, like, super rigid against that, but now those are the only people watching their movies, <laughs> like, myself included, mm-hmm. like, I guess they would probably hate me for writing this thesis, you know, <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> so, yeah. Uh,
0: speaking about your thesis, uh, before we jump into the big Marxist debate, maybe, um, mm-hmm. the, you also mentioned uh, that uh, in, your, in your abstract uh, that uh, some uh, people suggested that there was a move uh, from Brecht to Benjamin. Yeah, who is Benjamin? Benjamin <laughs> I don't know Benjamin um, yet.
1: Yeah, it's uh, Walter Benjamin, and he was actually a a good friend of Brecht. Like Brecht is so like to contextualize Brecht, he was um, a th- playwright from like around the 30s, 40s, 50s mm-hmm. from Berlin. So they really like kind of like lived through that like uh, pre-war. Um, Yeah, like the, how do you say, the years leading up to the Second World War in Germany.
0: The interbellum. The
1: interbellum, yeah. Um, And um, Walter Benjamin is also from uh, Berlin during that time, also another philosopher. Actually, his story is like really tragic, but like he was uh, Jewish and he, so then also had to flee the country Mm -hmm. to avoid persecution And, um, he, uh, was able to flee all the way to the coast of France, um, where he would be able to like flee the continent by boat. But then, um, I guess just on the night before, like the Nazis got up on him and, um, he, uh, then committed suicide in order to like get away from that situation. Um, so actually it's like a very tragic story and, um, In his philosophy, like, he was also a Marxist thinker and he's often connected to, um, like, the Frankfurter Schule, Mm -hmm. Frankfurt School of, like, Theodor Adorno and, like, other thinkers, critical thinkers. So critical in that they're critical of modernity. Um, And um, so in a lot of his philosophy, it's also basically trying to challenge fascism and trying to find a way to battle against it, basically. Um,
0: and so, when when Brecht is the one that brings the this, this constant reminder that you're kind of watching a play or that the, this effect of alienation and catharsis, what should we? Uh, uh, yeah. what, uh, what should we imagine when?
1: I think maybe the difference, like if there's a difference, because they've also influenced each other in many ways. And Brecht is also not just one thing. But mm-hmm. I think what Brecht kind of represents like another big element of his theater is that there's a fable that kind of overarches the plots. Yeah. So like, like a
0: little lesson or
1: no. Yeah. But fable as in kind of, um, the explanation of why these events are taking place. Ah, and okay, that explanation yeah. would be then like, for example, because capitalism is bad, like like, mm-hmm. you know, or, okay, yeah. and because we are in need of a Marxist revolution, like that's basically the fable so everything in that happens in the story, even the smallest element, relates back to that bigger fable. And um, so the biggest criticism of Brecht, um, I guess after the World War, kind of with like post-war cynicism and kind of like with... I mean, I have to watch out with post-modern thinking because I don't know if it's like... <laughs> I would say it relates back to this idea of like the end of grand narratives
0: mm-hmm.
1: um of like like the narrative of modernity, the narrative of progress and like and or Humans of the enlightenment can shape
0: everything, yeah rational beings that
1: yeah. Yeah, we're and like religion, like we're kind of starting to lose our faith in that. And Marxism is one of those grand narratives. Yes. So if we have to look at a breath play and then like ex- every little thing is explained. In from the perspective of this idea of um the dissolution of capitalism is inherent of the progress of capitalism yeah, yeah. and then after that will be communism like that is just not something doesn't work anymore yeah. yeah and so like what is the value of that then still um so then you will have like post-brechtian theater makers who will kind of still use elements of brecht like they will still li- make plays and say these are socially significant but we cannot pretend that knowing the exact meaning of Mm -hmm. every single thing that we put here, this kind of didactic idea of like we as theater makers are the teachers. We know what the world looks like because we're this kind of intellectual class that like knows these things from analysis and stuff like that. And we're going to teach a worker audience. Like they have kind of lost faith that they can fulfill that position. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they do not claim at knowing that anymore. So they will like, um, make these performances and kind of also transfer that responsibility of making sense of it also on the audience. They're like, we cannot pretend that knowing everything, you yeah. will also have to come up with your own answers to this. Like kind of deferring and that. And that's
0: more Benjamin's I, influence I, then? Or?
1: Yeah, it is more Benjaminian um, because of, I, I, like maybe now I should like kind of move on to uh, first to, like, the two most important texts that I also refer to in my thesis by Benjamin, um, which are uh, the film essay, um, or, um, wait, <laughs> the long title, um, which is, God, The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction. That's, that's okay. the full name. <laughs> um, and you can call it, like, like I refer to it as film essay, but it's also, just as well, the aura essay. Basically, mm-hmm. it's the idea that... Um, art used to have this kind of aura around this this aura of authority or this aura of legitimacy um like this idea of like well the mona lisa is like a masterpiece and it's like why oh, yes, yes. just just because like if you mm-hmm. look at it it's like you just know and it's like but why though um and kind of benjamin kind of makes a material analysis of that like the, the only reason for that basically is kind of that an, a work of art used to be unique like if you make a painting like that's an object that someone made and it has like a fixed place in time and and, you know, it has like its own Germany. So it has its authenticity and that authenticity determines its value. So like, at least with the Mona Lisa, you can be like, yeah, but it's like the genuine thing. So, Mm -hmm. but because of mechanical reproduction, which was coming up during his time because of photography and uh, printing and stuff like that and film, you could like reproduce it so it was kind of like so what is the difference then between like the mona lisa and a copy of the mona lisa like you cannot tell the difference anymore um and the idea is kind of like what i'm also maybe skipping over is that like this kind of ritual value of it is basically that you have to go to a specific place in order to see it yeah and there's like only in
0: the one of it you have to go there yeah. you have to And like with museums that became a
1: little bit more accessible, but like in the past, the art was only like for the aristocracy and it was hanging in their homes and nobody else could see it or it was hanging in a church, but then it also had a different ritual value to it. Like Mm -hmm. this kind of transcendent idea behind it. Um, And um, so with museums, it became a little bit more accessible but then it also became a little bit bo- more warped. So, okay, well, why are these works of art still valuable? And um, I think uh, John Berger has, like, a good analysis of that. And, like, he has a very interesting documentary uh, series, Ways of Seeing, which I would recommend to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, in Ways of s- ways of Seeing. Ways of Seeing. Okay. And in the first episode, which was inspired by um, Walter Benjamin's essay, he kind of talks about how... Um, art criticism tries to kind of maintain this aura around the work of art, like kind of trying to legitimize why it's supposed to be so much more important than every other thing Mm -hmm. um, and why it's supposed to be like, then um, like trying to legitimize why it's worth so much money. Like that's basically what we're talking about. So what Benjamin is actually talking about is just plain old commodity fetishism. Ah,
0: Um,
1: And so he says that because of photography, because of film like that directly challenges um, Aura um, and um, he like in some of his versions he sees it as a negative thing but that's a whole other thing in this <laughs> version like i sure the there's
0: a lot of people <laughs> discussing that one yeah, uh, <laughs> but in, yeah. In, in
1: this particular version the most well known version he tries to kind of spin it in a positive way because that also means we're kind of liberated from the oppression of this tradition of um, art and of other traditions, of this kind of myths that are hanging over. So again, the end of grand narratives, like mm-hmm. this idea that like we have to live our lives according to what religion says. We have, you know. Um, so he says it's also good in a way because that means we can look at the world anew and make our own sense of it. Um, and then he sees you don't
0: all have to comply with the idea that this is how you should make a painting this is how you should make a, yes. a movie even yes
1: and he is kind of then looking like okay maybe we can this means we can move more into the experiments like make many different kind of things, but like don't like that are not necessarily the one best thing you know um and he sees that experimentation kind of in film like he sees in film a big uh, potential for that so because like at the time there was also the soviet cinema of like eisenstein and ziga vertov and especially ziga vertov he had this movie like Men with a moving camera which is basically a portrait of the city and it's just such a refreshing kind of like radical new way of looking at the world and he's so he sees that also inherent in like the camera eye itself like basically he compares the camera to dynamite that blows up the street but then It helps us to, like, then go explore uh, around, like, the ruins and find, like, new interesting ways of looking at it. I don't know. So, yeah. That's the film essay. And then there's another essay, which is the history essay, which is a thesis on the philosophy of history, um, in which he kind of argues that, like, Marxism needs theology and theology needs Marxism. In order to reach redemption or revolution, Um, um, and uh, theology in the sense of messianism, Um, Benjamin was very influenced by Jewish mysticism. And like, if we think about like from a Christian point of view, we think of like Jesus Christ. But in uh, Jewish mysticism and like Jewish thinking, the Messiah hasn't arrived yet. The Messiah Mm -hmm. is still to come. And Benjamin is not talking about some holy figure that will come down to earth and um, will, you know, free us all. Or he's not talking about some kind of ubermensch in a way or something. Uh Like what he's talking about is a weak messianic power that is in all of us. Like all of us have have the potential of kind of working at liberating ourselves
0: sounds marxist yeah (laughs)
1: it's very marxist so it's not magical in any way it's basically just that like i I think what he's pointing is that we do have agency um, but we have to utilize it and what he's challenging is kind of this myth of progress that like is so typical of capitalism that everything is constantly improving for the better Mm -hmm. and that also uh, then some Marxism also started to believe in or some like he was very critical of like I think the socialist democratic party um in Berlin because they were so complacent in this idea of like oh but like with technological innovation everything is changing for the better and the people will be less oppressed because of that not
0: like we've heard that argument any day right (laughs) and in in recent times yeah Uh, but uh we kind of smoothed into them. uh Topic of Marxism.
1: Yeah.
0: Because Schrauben... <laughs> <Trump and> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <you laughs> yeah. <laughs> God damn it. Yeah. Um, yeah. You sent me one very uh, angry, I think I can call it angry article yeah. <laughs> of a guy that was like, this is not actually Marxism. Um, what? Yeah. Maybe well, because he does, he does acknowledge that uh, you do see the... Um, Experiences of uh, and the views and, and, and the ideas of uh, people that have lived or experienced the horror of uh, Nazism, imperialism with the Algerian uh, mm-hmm. War, for example, um, and the continuous uh, threat of militaristic, fascistic catastrophe presented by the, and here, i quoting here, existence of uh, global capitalism. Um, but He doesn't uh, consider them genuine Marxists. What should maybe first of all, what should we can? When would a movie be genuine Marxist? I know that's a very big question, which is probably fully debated. But like, what things could we expect to see or? er, That's the thing.
1: I'm not enough of an expert on Marxism to kind of make this claim, but it's also this kind of false idea that there's one true. um i think what he's also like but i think what's very apparent in the article especially at the end he said he like his conclusion is like these are not real marxists and then he compares them to other people that he doesn't consider real marxists but (laughs) are very much marxists um like he talks about the like frankfurters schule and adorno and like people like that and then i think like oh this is specifically that faction of marxism that i'm talking about like benjamin's marxism like maybe i don't know rom- romantic marxism and um maybe it's just a marxism that people are also less aware of mm-hmm. um so yeah to, to like come back very quickly to the history essay just to explain this um so like he says like Marxism or dialectical materialism needs theology, so messianism and messianism needs dialectical materialism what he means with that is basically that we are um, like because of this myth of progress um, and because technical innovation is happening so rapidly, Mm -hmm, we're kind of moving in the bad direction, like he's very pessimistic of what's going to be at the end of that, like he has no trust that that's going to lead us anywhere good and um he argues that we have to actively like go against the tide of this like so-called progress um and um in order to do that we have to make use of our weak messianic power and we kind of have to look at like details and like potential potentialities that we're kind of maybe overlooking now because we see them as naive or we see them as like for having no use to us talking he talks basically about like hidden histories of the oppressed yeah because like he says that like our main history that we teach in schools and that we know and identify ourselves by is the history of the victors um, is the history of the people who have always won in history. Yeah, one um, of the big
0: issues of yeah, especially western history at the moment. So he says there's like education? no
1: artifact, no cultural artifact that like we now revere that isn't a result of bar- barbarity, isn't a result of like oppressing other mm-hmm. people and so basically what he's also saying is that because of that the things that, or the values that we hold high um, like maybe there's also different values that like were important in the past and we now just like don't really look at them or don't really consider them useful to us Mm -hmm. because we're not able to see them anew anymore. And he basically argues that we have to look for these hidden histories of the oppressed to maybe find the slightest chance of like changing this course of history. And he sees that chances being very, very, very slim but not non-existent. So he argues for a very radical pessimism, a very active pessimism, like something that should, like I don't know, like um, move you into action. Um, so that's kind of like those two things combined. Like there is a possibility of redemption, but that possibility is very, very slim, and it is determined by our material conditions. Um, so, but maybe we have to look at those. Material conditions with more attention and search for like different possibilities of like changing stuff, you know?
0: Yeah, because the the uh, the most interesting part of the of the criticism that I found uh, the article was written by David Walsh. By the way, um, the most interesting part I found was that he says they're not actually an alternative at all to the mm. current. System we live in, uh, he yeah. says, they are uh, the other side of the same coin. Uh, where the one is uh, this, um, you know, mindlessness of commercial cinema, what th- they have is uh, a complete divorce of a variety of leftism from life. Like, The one is is commercial bullshit, if I can translate freely. And what they have is just unrealistic bullshit. Like, it's still both bullshit, is what he says. Uh, And and it speaks to a a period of political and cultural stagnation in which we live. So, because they are extremely... They ended up being very academic or being watched. Yeah, or like,
1: maybe uh, excessively negative or like rejecting of life like yeah, I, I interpreted well. i interpreted the thing of like divorce from life as like a criticism that returns very often in certain kinds of leftist arts that it like i don't know it really wants to try to ex- escape this dominant view of looking at things mm-hmm. um that like it seems at some point to have nothing to do with us anymore. And But I think the interesting thing about that, which is what I'm also arguing in my thesis, is that it's not diverse from life, actually. It has this very high commitment to life, but it's just, I don't know, again, in this idea of this very slim chance that we might observe out there somewhere, they kind of believe that real humanity is kind of something that is lost to us right now, and we wouldn't really recognize it now so like i think no uh, yeah, th- yeah. sorry it's difficult <laughs> to explain um so i think basically the reason why Walsh is saying this is because like the actors playing their part they're playing their part so dryly and so without emotion and like any mm-hmm. emotion or like any recognizable emotion is the enemy and um it is true in as far as they try to avoid naturalistic depictions of emotion. Um but, but I, I compare basically their acting style to kind of the acting that can be found in Bresson. And Bresson was a Protestant like filmmaker, um, who like um has been categorized as like transcendental cinema. I forgot the guy who came up with the name, but um so basically his actors did a very specific thing which is basically acting as models um and so that meant that i don't know they played their texts like almost in a kind of meditative state like very much like not trying to add anything to it like it's just like they say the words and that's no it. facial expression or body no language. facial expression no body language no intentional facial expression okay. or body language so the emotion that had to arise then or like the slightest sliver of it had to be their own or had to be like authentic emotion and i think Persona kind of had this idea of like if you look into their eyes you can see their soul like kind of like that like and and so there's no affectation that it's kind of distracting yeah. from that and i kind of also recognize that in strappier that like because the way they recite their text, it's like so strict, but it also feels like kind of like as you would do like yoga or you would say a mantra or you would like do meditation. You kind of get into this state where you're not thinking with your rational brain, but you're kind of like more acting through your like bodily habits. And they see Mm -hmm. that as more genuine to us than like, this kind of fake fake emotion, the emotion. Like, like method acting yeah. kind of idea of like faking emotion mm-hmm. and the same with like the story like they like i think walsh also says that like they are um like they are against any natural fascination with drama that like humans have so i guess basically that's like the criticism of like um or maybe i'm strawmanning here but I do think he's kind of like, oh, but what is wrong with catharsis? What is wrong with classical storytelling? And yeah, he's
0: quoting Trotsky at at some point, mm-hmm. or or, uh, or at least referring to Trotsky. He's saying, um, it would inevitably require, you know, real Marxist uh, cinema, I guess, uh, as Leon Trotsky suggested, a definite and important feeling for the world, a feeling for life as it is an artistic acceptance of reality and not a shrinking from it, an active interest in the concrete stability and mobility of life, a preoccupation with our life of three dimensions, as a sufficient and invaluable theme for art. So basically, like, the it sounds a little bit like the gritty realism, like, yeah. like the romantic paintings depicting workers mm-hmm. in the field and, and workers in the factory, yeah. almost.
1: But I do think that, like, Strapia I want to stay away from that because, like, isn't that also a fantasy in a way? Isn't that mm-hmm. also in a way yeah, yeah. something that we try, uh, like I it's think. An
0: idealized. I think Lenin was film. was
1: also quoted in the Gil- Gilberto Perez text and it's kind of also a flattery of the revolutionary people, I guess, to, to kind of the self-mythologizing of yeah. like, oh, the true gritty reality, like ah oh, the, the salt of the earth kind of yeah, idea. Yeah. Um, and like also a, thing that I wanted to say is like it's not that it's unrecognizable to us that these things have nothing to do with life anymore like um, the texts that Scharpier choose are texts that resonated very deeply and personally with them and also if you look at some of the words like for example they use this text by Hölderlin um, who was a early German romantic uh, early German romantic um, poet and translator and he um, translated this um, story, also Greek mythological about Dertotes Empedocles. That was one. And in the text, they talk about a kind of utopia. Um, and Straubier, like it, it's from interviews and stuff like that, you can see how the way he describes this utopia with like so much. Emotion and with so much passion, like that really resonated with them and like that really felt real to them and as something that they wanted to use in their films and like show Mm -hmm. to other people as truthfully as they could. And so, them to say, like, oh, it has nothing to do with life, it has nothing to do with real emotion, like, no, it does. But specifically, what they hold valuable to them, and in that way, they are authentic and just. But I, I do understand if you would see it from the old, uh, for the first time, it would be like, oh, it's this very old text that has nothing to do with this anymore, recited in a very dry way, and it seems like it has nothing to do with life anymore. But everything, every little action is done very purposefully. I don't know. Um, and so this idea of like, oh, if if it's it would be truly emotional if, if or if it would be truly true to people, it should be about this it's like no it's also again your notion of what it should be about yeah. and it's again another fantasy i guess or another myth so
0: the um this is the most uh, as you said again this is very high on that shelf of like trying to kind of kick this kick the um or, tr- or trying to alienate people and trying to uh, get out of anything that feels immersive or realistic in that sense. Um, but I was looking through the... This is a bit away from Straub and Hume. Who is God just, damn it. No, it's good. Like just That name. <laughs> um, but I was looking through the other uh, films that are sometimes considered Marxist or at least by... Uh, Guy that wrote the entire guide uh, by uh, Fairfax. Fairfax, yeah. Uh, are considered Marxist, or that you should watch in the various Marxist periods, and it contains a few interesting uh, titles which I don't think are often, yeah, in um, considered to be Marxist uh, movies. Um, and it has Nosferatu, the the vampire Nosferatu, mm-hmm. uh, from nineteen twenty one, uh, La Dolce Vita. From 1960, uh, it has Citizen Kane from 1941 by Orson Welles, and it has uh, also Fahrenheit nine eleven by Michael Moore on it. Yeah, for the <laughs> contemporary ones, but uh, yeah, that's not something you would Im- immediately clock as.
1: No, I think that also speaks to the diversity of like how you can think about Marxist ideas in film. Like, I think it's also this idea of like, I don't know. That maybe a lot of Marxist tendencies are inherent in some films, even if it wasn't maybe the intention of the maker or like what they were very mm-hmm. preoccupied with. But Citizen Kane is actually a good example of that. Like the recent, like I talked, <laughs> but I'll, I'll refer back to that because it might be interesting. Um, Citizen Kane was uh, written... By uh, this guy named Mankovic, Mank and recently there was made a, like, a, there was a biopic made about this story with uh, Gary Oldman. and basically he was like a very leftist like uh, yeah. progressive guy who wanted to make this very critical uh, screenplay about the American dream and like how they can like turn sour and like how you know the kind of problem with that and try to really kind of fight against these Hollywood execs to kind of like put this story out there and there's recently been made a movie about it so like even a movie like citizen kane that like we now only look back to as in like oh it's like so important um for i don't know it's technological innovation it's but we can we completely don't recognize it as a radical story anymore yes, um, citizen which it might King have been at the time you know like
0: if i'm not mistaken it's uh, on a on a list of uh, movies that were culturally significant for the development of the USA. Uh, yeah, it's usually what everybody cites. and One of their...
1: I th- and I the think that's also interesting because... I think it also has to do with a lot of romantic notions. Like I haven't talked a lot about romantic, like there's so many things you can talk <laughs> about, but um, what's also really interesting. Morgan is
0: will definitely drag you back on the podcast at some point.
1: <laughs> I mean, yeah, like, uh, I really hope I, I am making sense because like it's a <laughs> big subject and it's really hard to explain to people. Um, but like romanticism um Like, there was also a book that I read, like... So, there's, like, the Marxist influences, but then there's also the Romantic influences. And I read this book that basically argues that, like, what all Romanticisms have in common is that they're always a criticism of modernity. They always go against modernity. Mm -hmm. Um, And with that, like, often also against capitalism. And, um... So... Uh... Shit, what was (laughs) I gonna say? Uh, No... um, Wait, wait, wait. No, I had a point. <laughs> um Let me let Oh yeah, so Okay. Um and so uh, often with romantic it's kind of like this nostalgia um yeah. of like past values that were once important and like that we kind of lost. Um like community and stuff like that. Um and um so in one of the later chapters of the book he also talks about how there's also a lot of romantic notions in, like, very mainstream Hollywood films. Um, and that are kind of inherently subversive, like, if you really think them through. But then are kind of, like, tempered. Because, like, it's, again, with the aim of this kind of catharsis. So it will make use of this ro- these romantic notions. Like, um, I don't know, it's a good example I think basically what it's arguing is that, like, the values in of capitalism, like, I guess, self-sufficiency, of being self-made, of being very individualistic, um, those are important to us. Yeah. But, like, there is still a very big need for these older values that we, that are kind of, like, that go against what capitalism yeah, represents, yeah. t- this need for community, of sense of belonging yeah. and stuff like that. And because of that, it's like very attractive, and and they're often used in like commercials or mainstream cinema to kind of like fill that need for those things. And have you alleviate those emotional needs and then. But strip them 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 of their subversive qualities. Um, And so, for example, like a good uh, example that they're talking about is like the Never Ending Story, that originally the book, The Never Ending Story, was actually meant to be very subversive and kind of like go against. Like, the, the author himself is actually very critical yeah. of capitalism and stuff like that. But then it got turned into s- this super, like, popular 80s blockbuster that, like, everybody has nostalgia to. And it's still, like, very important to people, but nobody will remember it as, like, a story that is, but like, not for it's critical or subversive, yeah, yeah. you know? Like, so it's, like, stuff like that. It's, like, tempered. Mm-hmm. Um, which often happens with, like, countercultural subversive movements i forgot the ex- exact term for it, but it has a name this process um yeah like
0: let me uh, ask you this uh as a as a last question so yeah. maybe to close um should we with with activists or with people that are you know should should we get the marxists together and sit and watch uh the a straub um movie or in is that a thing we should do just, uh, you know, maybe once or something or is it... Um, I think
1: definitely once. Um, and But that's the thing. They think their movie should be able to be watched without context and, like, if the people are going to get it, they're going to
0: get it. <laughs> like, like what they often say is, like... I feel like a lot of people will walk out on that event. Yeah,
1: <laughs> like, what they often say is, like, yeah, we don't have a big audience or, like, people don't get our movies yet, but that's because the audience of that will... Like our movies doesn't exist yet, which sounds as like a cop-out. <laughs>
0: it's very pretentious. Yeah, and
1: it is very... No, like, it cannot be argued against that, like, it is definitely pretentious, but um what they also kind of mean with that is that, like, w- it is difficult to imagine because there, we aren't liberated yet and stuff like that, yeah. so there is some legitimacy behind what they're saying but it also sounds very funny <laughs> yes. it's like what every unsuccessful filmmaker could say I don't understand <laughs> the really? audience hasn't been invented yet yeah. it's not even their fault it's just that they're not ready or like maybe the next generation That makes it a little
0: bit better that they're not saying so, we're stupid
1: yeah so what they're <laughs> saying is basically like no like if they're gonna get like they'll just get it so i do think that if you would show it to people i think like i, I do think we should like come together and like try to watch it and then also like maybe after that definitely encourage discussion or like I don't know but I do think I I feel kind of conflicted about it because like as we say they haven't proven very successful I guess in their mission of reaching the working class yeah but that doesn't mean that like we aren't in need of some challenge, you know? And to kind of like stick with the kind of thing that we are familiar with. And I do think their formal experiments are very radical and they do lead to lots of interesting discussions. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah no definitely we should come together but then maybe also give like maybe a little bit of background info i don't know like May- try maybe to contextualize not it a little without
0: li- context yeah
1: like no, like no subtitles just italian poetry the entire <laughs> time and and you know like just feel the marxism yeah, <laughs> like feel the marxism like let it let it just let it come to you
0: i feel like that's a that's a beautiful <laughs> That's yeah. a beautiful quote, maybe we'll use that okay. as a title, <laughs> <laughs> the Marxism, Yeah. <laughs> uh, because um, as, as really as a last comment,
1: <laughs> Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, they they haven't been really successful, oh, if I may say that.
1: I mean, it's in as far as they wanted to... To not reach an intellectual audience of cinephiles and academics and intellectuals. Yeah, they definitely failed (laughs) in their mission. But, I mean, as they say, their movies are kind of meant to last. And, I don't know, they just wanted to put something very pure and something that they fully stood behind. And if, like, it's not going to reach anybody, then so be it. But maybe it might reach somebody. And even maybe it could, like, lead to that person being like, oh... I kind of get what they were going for, but I don't know, I'm going to do something like that, but maybe better. Like, even that would kind of, I guess, be succeeding, you know, like in their view, because then it at least would have let someone to do something. Like So maybe we should
0: experiment with their movies a little bit and see like... Yeah. what parts of them stick in, in and yeah. what reactions they cause I
1: think that's also a big thing with them not wanting to be a didactic like it's not them making these movies and saying like oh this is what the revolution is gonna be like it's definitely meant for people to not become more passive but activate them into doing something and if that something is making a completely different movie that like is <laughs> better in their view then at least that has moved them to do something you know okay. like I don't know <laughs> So, yeah. And we should experiment with it, definitely.
0: Okay. Thank you, Lotte. Yeah, you're welcome. (laughs) Uh, We'll definitely have you on again. Okay, okay. Movies (laughs) are too important not to talk about.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. Maybe next time about a a less broad and vast (laughs) subject, but yeah.
0: (laughs) But it was interesting. We don't get to talk about more niche films a lot.
1: That's true, that's true. And we should at least give them a chance, maybe. Yeah. So, (laughs) yeah
0: okay okay um thank you guys for listening and uh we'll get back to you and uh, by next week probably uh bye bye bye